This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 89, and I am doing something a little bit different this episode. We have a lot to look forward to in this week's um this week's lineup, we've got an, a fantastic interview with Jojo Moyes, which we'll get to in a bit. And before that, I wanted to introduce a little bit of a new segment. I wanted to take some time this week to talk directly to you, since I'm usually inside the guise of interviewer, but I want to get more connected to everybody listening, and I wanted to share a little bit more about what's going on at the Secret Library directly. So the first segment I'm going to call novel confessions, because I've been working on a novel, which I've alluded to in many of these episodes for the past, I think for about the past year and a half. And I feel like something that's going to help um, those listening who want to write as well as my own process is to do something I'm calling novel confessions, which is I feel I need to be accountable to everyone listening. Um, in terms of my process and holding to my deadlines and not waffling and thinking that it doesn't matter if I write today or, oh, I can work on this other stuff and the book can wait. I don't want the book to wait anymore. And I'm sure people out there can relate to feeling that way about their own books. So I am going to give you an update about where the book is now. And we won't do a segment like this every week, but I think periodically I'm going to check in and let you know how it's coming so that I don't feel like I can be lazy or I can get distracted or I can skip my writing practice in favor of doing other things. Um, It's really easy to put the show first. It's really easy to put my clients first. It's really easy to put pretty much everything first when you're feeling distracted or like you want to procrastinate writing. And I'm sure everyone can relate to that. So here is my first confession in novel confessions. Um, I have an outline. I've had an outline since probably last spring, late last spring, and I have been working my way through it. I have talked about with my clients, the book by K.M. Wayland, which is called Outlining Your Novel. And I worked through her workbook after waffling around and kind of wandering around, as I say, wandering around like an asshole, um, just writing without any plan for a few months, starting last January and feeling like I wasn't getting anywhere. So I decided it was time to make an outline. I got K.M. Wayland's book. I went through the Outlining Your Novel workbook and did all of the exercises, basically, and finished it late last spring and have been writing steadily since then. Um, And there have been gaps. There have definitely been gaps. But right now I'm in an on phase. And I wrote probably about three to 5,000 words a week um, the first two weeks of January and then realized that was a little aggressive, got a little tired, burned out, um, and I'm just getting over cold now. But my plan is to get through the rough draft of the novel by the end of March. So I wanted to put that out there and force myself to be held accountable to it. I think it's completely doable. Um, I've been having check-ins with Dal Cooler, who was on last week, um, or I should say two weeks ago. And we talked about our anthology. I wrote it anyway. And she has been really good about keeping me accountable, but I want to be accountable to everybody. So I'm saying it now. I'm going to finish the rough draft of this novel by the end of March 2018. That is my novel confession. Part two 
is I wanted to share some current projects that we are working on here at the Secret Library. One of which is that we are hurtling at a rapid clip towards episode 100, which is so exciting to me and to Barry. We've been working on this thing for almost two years and it will be right up at the two-year mark that we're getting to episode 100. So we wanted to celebrate that. Um, Launching the anthology with Doll is part of that celebration. And I want everybody to please consider contributing an essay about facing obstacles, both outer and inner, in bringing yourself to write. So you can learn more about that and see about contributing to that at IWroteItAnyway.com. And then the other way that we're celebrating is we are going to have a new website. Um, The podcast is going to get its own website, which will be brand spanking new for episode 100. And um, my site, carolinedonahue.com, is going to be the home of my coaching and my own work. So we're splitting off secretlibrarypodcast.com to be its whole own site so that that can kind of live and breathe in its own way so that my work and my courses can expand and take up a little bit more space on my site. So we're having a lot of fun with design and playing around with all of that. So there will be more to share about that in the coming weeks. And then the final part is that I wanted to share a pep talk of the week. So my idea for a pep topic of the week is that I see so many inspiring things online and I think, oh, that's such a great idea. And then I just sort of go on with my day and I wanted to take a minute to share one. So Mary Robinette Cowell has a blog at maryrobinettecowell.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. And she had a really great post about imposter syndrome. And I loved the way that she explained it, which was basically to put it in a a video game model, which is essentially that when you get to a place where something's really, really easy in a video game, it's really easy to win. So you beat the boss. The only game I ever played, I was actually never into video games because I was really bad at them, if we're going to be honest. My brother was into them and I thought, oh, I'm going to get into it. And I would try to play Super Mario Brothers and I just was terrible at it. So I lost it. But one thing I did notice is that as you get to the end of the level, the the big nasty monster that you have to beat at the end of the level is really easy at the beginning so that you can get through it. And then you go up to another level and there's a whole new set of challenges. And then there's a whole bunch of, you know, monsters at the end of that one. And they are harder each level you go up. And so the way that Mary Robinette Cowell explains imposter syndrome is that you've leveled up. And it means that you're feeling like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm I'm a terrible job. I'm terrible at this. I can't write. I have no idea what's going on. But it actually isn't that you're a terrible writer. It's just that you've beaten the level before and you've been kicked up into a new level. And so the monsters are bigger and scarier. And that's what's making you feel like you don't know what you're doing. But actually, it means that you're on the right track. And it means that you're succeeding and that you actually are writing well and that continuing is actually the way to go and that this feeling of feeling like an imposter is actually a sign that you're on the right track and the thing that I've always said to clients is that when I get scared or when something feels scary I always take it as a sign that I'm going in the right direction because it means that my little inner critic is getting freaked out 
and it would only get freaked out if I was on to something. And stay tuned right after the interview. I want to share a little bit about the books I've been reading lately. I've decided I want to do a little reading roundup. So that will be just after the interview before we wrap up the show. And now on to the interview. My guest this week is Jojo Moyes. She was born in 1969 and grew up in London. After a varied career, including stints as a minicab controller, typer of braille statements for blind people for the bank NatWest, and brochure writer for Club 18 to 30, she did a degree at Royal Holloway and Bedford New College, London University. In 1992, she won a bursary financed by the independent newspaper to attend the postgraduate newspaper journalism course at City University. Jojo then worked as a journalist for 10 years, including a year at South China Morning Post in Hong Kong and nine years at The Independent, where she worked variously as news reporter, assistant news editor, and arts and media correspondent. Jojo has been a full-time novelist since 2002, when her first book, Sheltering Rain, was published. Since then, she has written a further 13 novels, all of which have been widely critically acclaimed and anticipated. Jojo has won the Romantic Novelists Award twice, and Me Before You has been nominated for Book of the Year at the UK Galaxy Book Awards. Me Before You has since gone on to sell over 8 million copies worldwide. The film adaptation of Me Before You was a huge box office success, and the screenplay was written by Jojo. She lives and writes on a farm in Essex, England, with her husband, journalist Charles Arthur, and their three children. I was so excited to speak to Jojo, I'm, I'm sure anyone can imagine. It was such an honor to speak to her. And she was so generous. And I know you're going to get so much out of this because we go into everything from how she knew there was something different, something sparkly about Louisa Clark from the beginning, where the ideas come from, what matters to her when she writes a book, her feelings about women's fiction, how it's categorized and how it's regarded, as well as what all of her wild variety of early jobs did for her before she became a full-time novelist and what it took to get there. This was a fantastic conversation, and I know you're going to love it as much as I loved having it. So here we go with Jojo Moyes. Hi, Jojo. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So I, I wanted to talk, obviously, about Louisa Clark and her return in Still Me. And You've written, this is your 14th novel, which I must say, congratulations on that incredible, incredible work. But Louisa is the only one that has spawned a series over the course of writing all of these novels. And you've written so many wonderful characters. I'm wondering if you always knew as you started the series that Louisa was meant for a series or if anything felt different when you wrote me before you and wanted to continue. Well, I will say something did feel different when I wrote it. And it was simply that normally I have to work really hard to create characters. Um, I do a lot of groundwork. I I write down histories for them. I work out every last detail of their lives, all information that probably won't get used in the book, but um, but which helps kind of inform the way the character reacts with the world. And with Louisa and to Will Trainer. They both kind of landed in my lap, fully formed, which is really rare. And I don't think it's even happened before or since. And it just meant that writing the book was a joy because I knew exactly how she would respond in any given situation. And it also probably means that she's the character I feel closest to because instinctively I always understand you know, what she would do. And this meant that after I finished Me Before You, which I did not intend to be a trilogy at all, um, 
a couple of things happened. One is that readers contacted me in their thousands. I mean, like I never had a response like it. And I think it was partly due to the explosion of social media so that it was very easy for people to get in touch with me for a start. But also, um, I used to have a contact button on my website and people would want to talk to me about the book and they would want to know what Louisa did next. And then I had the film, which uh, I wrote the script for. So unlike all the other books I'd ever written, Louisa just was not allowed to leave my head because what with the sort of daily conversations about her and then the film and, you know, the directors and the producers saying, well, would she do this? Would she do that? She just, she was just lodged there for far, far longer. And it was um, because of that that I guess I started to ask myself the question, well, what would have happened after she was part of that? Because I just felt fundamentally that she wouldn't skip off into the sunset you know like like a happy thing the more I thought about it the more I thought that what happened would be oh I don't know would would provoke a really crushing and complicated response the more you thought about it well she was certainly left with the biggest dilemma of any of your characters or or kind uh-huh. of the biggest yeah like you said a blow to her life and yeah that can't help but change you Oh, completely. And, I, you know, I was a newspaper journalist for the best part of 10 years. And I think the thing that always fascinates me is what happens after the headlines fade? You know, what happens after your newspaper becomes a fish and chip paper? Um, what happens to those lives? And that was the thing that intrigued me about Louisa. I just wanted to work out in my head what she would have done next. And I saw it once I knew what I wanted to do with her for book two. I saw it very clearly as a kind of horseshoe shaped trilogy where me before you kind of took her into quite a, a complicated dark place and after you ended up its sequel after you ended up being an awful lot more melancholy than I'd originally intended and it was partly because if you inhabit a character honestly you have to slightly let them work at their own pace and Louisa just refused to cheer up <laughs> she just um you know, you can't kind of hurry your characters out of an emotion or else it just doesn't feel real. And the more I, I kind of thought about it, the more I thought, well, he was the love of her life. He he had this huge, profound effect on her in every possible way. You wouldn't just shake it off. You You would be kind of living under that cloud for an awful long time. But yes, I, I can't pretend there weren't times where I thought it would have been nicer to write a slightly jollier book. But I hope that Still Me is, is the jollier ending. It was um, it was so much fun to read, I have to say. And, and without, Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I devoured it. And it was really fun to see her in New York and to see her out of her element. And uh-huh. I wonder how it was to set her, to sort of kick her out of her own country. Like at first she has to leave her familiar surroundings coming into World mm-hmm. Trainer's world. Then she's dealing with grief and now she's in an entirely different country. So how was that for you exploring those different arenas? Well, I thought it was necessary to put her somewhere completely different for this book. You know, Will wanted her to kind of punch upwards and outwards. And I I thought about this book for about a year before I started writing. And in the end, I just thought the one place really in the world that is is the you know synonymous with ambition and thrusting upwards and and also you know being exciting and challenging and unforgiving in a in a kind of working environment is new york and 
I had to put her somewhere where we weren't going to have the kind of cultural and linguistic difficulties you might have with with some other fast-moving city. You know, I couldn't have put her in Rio de Janeiro or Tokyo because then it becomes a whole different thing. It becomes about Louisa learning languages and, you know, struggling to cope with food she doesn't recognize. And really, I wanted this to be much more about her emotional growth, if that doesn't sound really kind of tedious and <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. Not at all. Um, and and also for me, New York was a city I didn't visit for the best part of 20 years and then had to visit it an awful lot because every US tour I've done since Me Before You came out has been started in, in New York. And I've developed a kind of love affair with the city, I guess, that a, a kind of very belated love affair. And so in some ways it was easy for me to see it through her eyes because I felt very new to it, even at my advanced years. It is really fun to see New York um, through someone seeing it for the first time because it can be so exciting and so um, sparkly and glittery, which is sort of how it feels to her in some well, ways. In other problem. ways, you see the difficult sides of it too. But you have a problem if you're a writer who wants to write about New York, which is that so many people have done it before you and have done it really, really beautifully. And I thought, you know, as an English person, really the only way that I can do this convincingly is to do it kind of as an alien, is to do it with a degree of naivety. So I did a couple of research trips um, and I basically did nearly all the things that Louisa does because... Over the years, I found there's really there's no substitute for actually, you know, smelling the smells and hearing the voices and, you know, walking out the territory because it's never what you think it's going to be. You know, I didn't want to offend any New Yorkers for a start because say, I grew up in London and it, it, there's such clear distinctive differences between different parts of London. I know that, you know, an American would have to tread very carefully before trying to write in a knowledgeable way about London. And equally, I would have to tread very carefully writing about New York. So I really wanted to pick up on the differences, even, you know, between the, the east and the west side of Central Park, which have very, very different characteristics. And so I needed to speak to lots of people who understood those distinctions and um you know i hope that i've got it right and any mistakes that i've made are very much my own and not the people who helped me well i didn't notice anything that sounded off it, it oh, felt very you. much it felt very much like new york to me and sort of the the highs and the lows of it in all of it yeah I well I, like you I know it's, there. it's a sort of grubby love letter to the city <laughs> you know i i like to see both my people and my places through a very unrosy lens um so i think you can love something fiercely and be aware of its flaws at the same time and i sort of felt like new york in the same way that i feel about my characters which i i kind of love her and and yet think that, you know, I can see inherent problems within her at the same time. You've mentioned before and some things that you've written, I think this segues to this nicely, how much you love Jane Austen, who I also love. Uh -huh. And one of the things that I have found really um, rewarding in reading your books is the way that people encounter each other across class boundaries and are mm -hmm. transformed by that. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how you 
hold class as you're thinking about stories and as you write books because it does seem to be so much a part of the narrative. Yeah, definitely in the Louisa, Louisa Clark books, it, it very much is. I think as a novelist, you know, you work out pretty early on that all good narratives thrive on tension. You know, you have to work out where the tension is in your story. And if you grew up in England, you are so conscious of the class divide as a as a kind of, it's just a like thrumming backdrop to your every day, um, the way that you can immediately place someone by their accent, by what school they went to, by even the kind of shoes that they wear, whether they would wear, you know, running shoes in public, all that kind of stuff. It's it's so deeply ingrained in us that it's quite a shock when you go somewhere else and realize it doesn't exist in other places. But also for me, it's about money. It's about um our society, which I feel is polarizing more and more. And I, I can't ignore the way that these differences are becoming more and not less pronounced. And I, I do believe very strongly that just because you write commercial fiction doesn't mean that you you should ignore this kind of, I don't know, fault line, if you like, running through our society. Um, on a kind of creative level, I love the subtleties of it. You know, I love the the differences in the way that people speak to each other and the, the, the kind of the infinite ways in which we can choose to put each other down, should we choose to, which is a very Jane Austen thing. Um, you know, my husband and I have this running joke that I can be kind of quite badly insulted by a woman and he can't hear it. Mm. You know, it's like a dog whistle. Only dogs can hear it. And um he, you know, we'll be at a party or something and something will happen and I'll say, did you hear that? And he says, no, no, she was just being nice. You know, she'll say something like, oh, I love your shoes. I had a pair like that a couple of years ago. You know, something like that. <laughs> That's just a kind of rubbish example. And and I'll go, no, 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 she was not complimenting my shoes. He was like, she said you had nice shoes. I'm like, no, 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 no. The point was she was telling me she knew they were two-year-old shoes. And I can see his face like, I do not understand women. Right. <laughs> and then there was one one time when someone did something like that to me. Because um, I don't really do alpha female when I'm out. I just, I, I'm just not comfortable with that. And anyway, this woman did something similar to me. And my husband, it was like a little light bulb went off, off above his head. And he turned to me and went, she insulted you. And I went, yes, yes, she got it. <laughs> He finally we learned. Yeah, he heard it. It was like, it was amazing. And now he hears it. It's very interesting. It's like a little switch has gone off. I have to say, I mean, it's not like I go around being insulted all the time, but uh, it's just, you know, I think there's a very particular language that, that women use, um, certain kinds of women, not all women, obviously, uh, but uh, it just, it makes me laugh to hear it. And I think Jane Austen had mastered that, you know, many centuries before me. I should add, you know, I'm so flattered to even be mentioned in the same breath as Jane Austen. I can't even tell you. <laughs> well, I think we can't help but be influenced by her. She's such a powerhouse. Mm, and absolutely. I, think I can think of all of those things that play out in Still Me in who Louisa is working for, which is a woman who is a second wife and mm -hmm. is put in all of these social situations in which she is just listening like that dog whistle for these yeah. undercurrents but she is a woman from a different culture not only a different class but a different country stepping into this and i can totally see how all of that observation from from jane austen plays into that sort of narrative well also i just you know i she's a complicated character agnes but she's neither good nor bad and i think the thing that sort of 
fascinates me is is when you have you know a second wife for example moving into an established group um the way people clothes ranks and it, it it doesn't even have to be just be the super rich it could be like a working man's club in north of england <laughs> you know if if some guy ditches his wife and brings in the 22 year old people are going to not necessarily be the friendliest um and I just, yeah, exactly that. The cultural differences, the linguistic differences, the inherent suspicion of the outsider, whether they are foreign or just, you know, the fact that in choosing to find a younger second wife, that man is is possibly putting ideas in, you know, their own husband's heads. I think those sorts of actions can be very destabilizing and people react accordingly. It's a fascinating scenario to play with, and it does give you lots of leverage to look at how humanity works on a micro mm-hmm. level. So how was it sort of playing with all of those other, the first wife, and I remember the the sort of dynamic between Luisa and Agnes's husband's assistant talking about, okay, this is going to be a bad event, you know, because she might be there and all of these preparations that had to be made and the clothing and the, and everything that Louisa was kind of propping her up. And there was a sort of sweetness in her need for Louisa to support her, but also how Agnes ultimately, you know, how she treats her is still that she's an employee which is fascinating also. Well, exactly. And that's the great paradox when you have staff. I mean, one of the things that has fascinated me over the past few years when I've, because of the success of Me Before You, I've had some access to the lives of of some very wealthy and successful people. And I think one of the things that has always struck me is the way if you are super rich or super successful, you are never on your own. You know, your house is always full of other people uh, because there are staff who are necessary for you to lead that kind of high octane existence. I mean, most of us get through our lives and it's just us or just us and our families. And then these other people, they have to live their lives under observation. And yet everybody has to pretend that the observation is not happening um, because otherwise you'd go a bit crazy. And if you are not used, if you're like Agnes and you are used to just being a hardworking emigre, you know, perhaps living with a bunch of girlfriends, but essentially a single person, suddenly being thrust into this world in which everybody is watching you and everybody is judging you. And that's just in your own house. That's not even, you know, out at one of these kind of big dinners or whatever. Then I think you are going to find that psychologically very difficult. I I would find it difficult. I do find it difficult. You know, I rely on a lot of help now because my life is quite complicated and, and I find that very strange. I, I don't think I've got used to it at all yet. No, I can imagine. And I, I can't help but mention this because you have this mm-hmm. on your website. Okay. The most incredible list of early jobs that I think I have ever read. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, the typing of the Braille statements for NatWest, as well as a minicab controller, is—I mean, I want to hear a novel about that myself. Well, you know, I wrote one. I wrote one. I wrote three books before I got published, and I wrote a whole one about a girl who worked in a a, a minicab, like you know, unlicensed taxi office. Uh, which turned out to be a front for a criminal activity, which which was pretty much what happened to me. <laughs> um, Do we ever get to have thing. that one? 
Is that one ever going to no. come out? Or it, you, you know what? The it? thing I learned about the, those three books that all got rejected is they weren't good enough. And they, had, they were my kind of training ground. They were the thing I had to do to learn how to be a novelist. Um, but yeah, no, I, here's the thing about my early jobs. I was, uh, there's loads of others that are not included in there, like bar, barmaid and um, you, you call it a bartender, don't you? Um, I used to clean the men's toilets at a warehouse. Wow. I was a market trader. Um, I've done a whole bunch of fairly unsavory jobs, but what they all taught me was about human nature up close and not just human nature, but all different stratas of society. You know, my my life has not been wholly middle class. I have worked with all you know, the widest variety of people you can imagine. And that has all come and turned out to be immensely useful in terms of the lives that I tried to portray because I feel like I've been given an insight into lives that are very, very different from my own now. That's fascinating. And you you have referenced writing those three novels before selling yeah. one and that you were going to write this fourth one and if it didn't work out, you were going to chuck it. And I'm yeah. wondering if you have some thoughts on the inspiration, as many people listening are, are, are hoping to write themselves, what kept you going? And, and what would you say to that part of yourself that was struggling along then if you could talk to her now? Well, you know, my agent at the time, she's not my agent anymore, but at the, at the time she said to me, when I sent her those three chapters having been rejected for the third time and, and let me tell you that was so crushing I, I can't tell you how disappointing it was because I was holding down a job I had a young baby I had written this novel around a full-time job and a baby and I was exhausted and I was so proud of it I'd worked so hard on it and and then everyone rejected it and then a matter of months later I wrote this these three chapters for a very different kind of novel and I sent them across to her and she told me afterwards that that was the point at which she said she knew I would get published because she said if you were a writer you can't not write and in spite of all that disappointment you couldn't help yourself you had to keep writing and I I really do believe that I think that writing is a compulsion in the same way that musicians need to make music and actors need to act I you know, I wrote eight books before I had a bestseller and, and I was equally having a, a very tough time considering the future of my career before me, before you came out. And, and I thought about other jobs that I could do one day. I was on a bus in London and I looked down and there was a, um, I think we call them mounted policewoman. I don't know what, what mm -hmm. you, call, you know, a policewoman on horseback. And I looked down and I thought, oh, well, I can ride. I, I could be a policewoman on horseback. And then I thought, oh, I could write a really good book about being a policewoman on horseback. And then I just <laughs> knew that I was done for because I can't, I can't not do it. And, you know, even if there comes a point where nobody buys my books anymore, I will probably just put them out there on the internet because I need to write. And I think, you know, I, ha I get a lot of people telling me they would love to write if only they had the time. Well, none of us have the time. You have to create the time every day. It's a discipline like everything else. Sit down, sit your bottom on the seat. Even if you write 500 words a day, just get up half an hour earlier, write the 500 words, and psychologically, you will always be moving forward. You will always be learning, even if you think you're not learning. And yeah, stick with it. I, my advice would be just to keep going, to t kind of learn from what you've got wrong. I learned from Amazon reviews. You know, I, Really? My first... 
Yeah, my first, and, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Any writer who says they don't look at their Amazon reviews is lying. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody looks at them. Um, That's probably and, compulsion as well. Yeah, yeah, we have way too much time to fiddle around on the internet. Um, but the the thing that a lot of my early books, uh, the reviews said that they were slow to get going, but stick with it. And if two people say that, then that's an opinion. But if 50% of your readers are saying that, that's you being too slow to get going. So I made a conscious effort to try and speed up the beginning part of my books, and that did seem to work. So, you know, collectively, it is worth listening. Um, you have to have a kind of fairly good sense uh, of what, what is worth listening to and what is just your kind of annoying neurotic in a, in a critic, which we all have. But um, I think, yeah, be flexible, learn from your mistakes, but just keep going is, is my advice. And the best thing too, is that when you have something happen like me before you, you have that entire back catalog, which just exploded. Oh, do you know what the greatest joy has been discovering that it it maybe it wasn't me and because you know when you don't sell anything for like eight books or you know you're let's just say I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit but your sales never achieved the levels that your publishers wanted for them then you end up thinking like I did well maybe I just don't write the kind of books that people want maybe it's just me you know maybe I should just think about doing something else and then when me before you came out and people discovered my writing and went back and read the others and told me they liked those that was like the greatest validation because yeah they liked it you know it was it it, it was possibly not me it was the packaging or the marketing or the fact that I just didn't end up on enough shelves and so it was so lovely to have readers contact me about the books before that that meant an awful lot to me and now I would say you have possibly the most at least in the U.S. distinctive visual statement on your covers like you can see them there's like a font that is the Jojo Moyes font basically and <laughs> you know so I love lovely. those covers I love them so much and in fact my publishers keep wanting to update them and I I say no no just let please leave me with those ones because for me it's a number of things one I think they're beautiful I think they pop out on a shelf and as you say they they very much they're very distinctive but secondly and this is really important as a woman who writes commercial fiction, they are kind of gender neutral, you know, for want of a, a slightly less unlovely phrase. A man would feel hopefully as comfortable picking up that cover as a woman. Um, they are not kind of pink, fluffy books with a stiletto heel on. Not that that's anything wrong with that, if that floats your boat, but I love to just be a book. I love to just have the title and, and my name on it. That's my idea of heaven. Absolutely. Well, I was surprised to see you categorized as romance, which I've seen you categorize a number of places because I just mm. think of them as good stories that well, have human experiences inside. So I wondered about how you identified with that category. Well, I think it's probably because I won the Romantic Novelist Prize twice in London. And I always struggle with how to describe this because I never want to sound ungrateful. You know, it's a great honor to be awarded a prize by your peers. But I find it interesting that, you know, unless you write what's called category romance, you know, those formula romances that, you know, maybe our, some of our mothers loved when, when they were... Um, you know, you know what I mean. The kind yes, of with they a specific the structure. Yeah, there's a specific structure that you have to stick to as a writer. And to me, unless you write those books, 
I don't understand why a man can write a book with a love story and it's just a book, but a woman's writing a love story and it has to be categorized as a romance because to me the term can be a bit reductive and I think nearly all great books in history have a love story running through them. I really do. I, I can think of so few books that don't have, you know, a love sto- story coming through them, you know, maybe Moby Dick. <laughs> I can't think of another one. And that's a kind of obsessive love between a man and a whale. Exactly. Um, it doesn't even have to be man-woman love. It can be, you know, many different kinds of love affair, love for somebody for their country, for a child, for same sex. It, it doesn't matter, but it has love shot through it. And, and yeah, so I, I, it's hard for me to bridle at anything because I have been so phenomenally lucky these last few years and, and I am grateful every day. But I think it's a shame and I would love to see uh, less reductive terms used as much as anything because I think we all want as many people as possible to to be able to enjoy our books without feeling self-conscious. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm... I could talk to you all day about all of this, but I know um, many other people are waiting to speak to you. So I'll just ask one last question, which is, sure. can you say anything about what you're working on now? Or are you taking it before <laughs> starting the next? Um, I'll tell you a little thing. And the only reason I'm being cagey about it is because I'm so superstitious. And I'm also quite capable of ditching a project at 30,000 words. Um, but at the moment, I'm working on a book that's very, very different from the Me Before You trilogy. It's uh, based on something that happened in Kentucky after the Depression. Um, it's it's based loosely on on a historical thing that happened. And I've been in eastern Kentucky doing research, and it was one of those places that totally defies your expectations, and I, I completely fell in love. Um, and yeah, so I'm really hoping that it works out because I'm just excited about writing it. Oh, it sounds fantastic. I hope it works out as well. Oh, thank and you. I'll look forward to reading that one. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with us and to share your experiences. It's been a delight having you on. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everybody. I hope you loved hearing Jojo as much as I love talking to her. It was totally a highlight to to speak with her. So as promised, I want to share a few books I've been reading lately in our first reading roundup segment that we're going to try out. We're doing some experimenting here as we head up to episode 100 to see if some of these segment ideas I've had are of interest to you all. So please do let us know if you're like, yes, that was great. Or no, please don't ever do that again. Hopefully, Hopefully it won't be so dramatic as that, but let us know what you think. So I wanted to share a couple of books I've read lately, the first of which um, is kind of the funniest. I've been thinking a lot about serial mysteries and the way that you follow a mystery series of characters. And of course, the first one that I remember reading as a kid was Nancy Drew. And I wanted to go back and revisit some of these books and see if they held up. I mean, they were originally written in 1930, so we're getting close to 90 years old for these things. And they were updated. um, They've been updated a few times a little bit, but it's it's sort of the same principle. And for the most part, I mean, I enjoyed reading it. Um, Yes, it feels dated. 
there's some writing style issues that that I had, like the tendency to use the phrase the young sleuth, like 900 times throughout the book. But I did sort of enjoy this, the plot and, and it's a good thing to look at for plot structure. However, I feel compelled to share the following paragraph. Um, this is on page five of the first Nancy Drew story, The Secret of the Old Clock. And within literally the first page, Nancy is driving a car and she's thinking about, I mean, we're, we're not even past the end of page one when she gasps in horror because a little girl about five years of age darts into the roadway, narrowly misses being hit by a moving van that's driving by and trips and falls off a bridge into the river. So this is like page one onto page two. There's a drawing on page three of what's happening. And then we get onto page four. And Nancy pulls over, leaps out of the car, fishes the little girl out of the water and brings her into the house. It turns out she's going to be okay. Now, uh, she's, she's a little girl who's living with her elderly aunts, Edna and Mary Turner, who introduce themselves. And then we get to um, hearing about the little girl Judy's history in a paragraph with a phrase so incredible that I shrieked with laughter so hard I woke my husband up who had fallen asleep when I was reading this. And this is the paragraph I have to share with you. I want to apologize to you, Nancy, for thinking you hit Judy, the woman said. I guess Edna and I lost our heads. You see, Judy is very precious to us. We brought up her mother, who had been an only child and was orphaned when she was a little girl. The same thing happened to Judy. Her parents were killed in a boat explosion three years ago. The poor little girl has no close relatives except Edna and me. Okay, that's the end of the quote. And the phrase boat explosion presented as if this is something that happens on a regular basis to people, like a car accident or a plane crash. It just sent me off the deep end. So I hope you don't think I'm crazy, but I just, I had to share that in case anyone hasn't read Nancy Drew since they were nine years old. Um, It was hysterical to me. Um, So that is book number one in the book roundup is my return to my childhood reading The Secret of the Old Clock. And I had a bit of a bad cold this week. So that actually took me about three days to get through, which is sad, but true. Um, The second book I want to mention is far more um, noteworthy in a, in a sense, um, far more, has a lot more gravitas to it and a lot more weight and import, which is Elaine Weiss's The Woman's Hour, which is coming out later this spring. And I have a giant stack of galleys that I keep in the house and I write inside the front cover the date that I'm interviewing the person on with the stack that I keep with me so that I can read the book in time to talk to the author. So I'm speaking with Elaine Weiss this week. So she's going to be on the show soon. Um, But this book is fantastic. Um, I cannot put it down. It's suspenseful, thrilling. Um, The only book I can compare it to is probably that I had a similar reaction to was One Summer by Bill Bryson, which was sort of a similar period in history, the 20s, crazy stuff going on so many things going on at the same time and all sort of hurtling along but this one even has a layer of suspense and tension for me that one summer did not which is of course it's about ratifying the 19th amendment and the process of getting the vote for women and she does such a good job because not only am I aware of how this turned out obviously given that I can vote now I'm still like 
at the seat edge of my seat kind of wondering what's going to happen next and getting very riled up and stressed and you know sweating and it, it feels so relevant and we wish that it didn't in this day and age but it feels incredibly relevant and I think it's something that's really important and I, I'm going to call Elaine Weiss's uh, The Woman's Hour Required Weeding particularly for American women. But honestly, I think anybody would get something out of it. I think everybody should know about our history and how difficult it was to get women to pass the vote barely 100 years ago. I mean, it's crazy. I also recently read, um, you'll remember the guest on the show in January, Joanna Penn, who writes thrillers under the name J.F. Penn. I wrote the, f- I read the first book in her Map Walkers series called Map of Shadows. And I'm really interested in reading both independently published and traditionally published books at the moment, because I think there's such a rich um, source of books in both. So and it was great to read what she had written, having talked to her, and I found the book really fun. She really lets her imagination run wild. It's an incredible conceit that you could, these people have paranormal abilities to get inside of maps and to travel within them. And it's pretty dark. It's real dark. And I don't know, I don't know if she'd be able to get away with all of that's in there. I mean, it kind of skirts horror, um, suspense, mystery, all at the same time. And it's the first book in a series for her. So I'll be interested to see where she goes with it. But I found it really diverting, engaging, and, you know, a good distracting read. So if you're looking for something to read on a trip, you really want to get away and you like something a little dark, that might be that might be a good one for you. And finally, um, I want to mention, I haven't finished this book yet, but on Dal Kular's recommendation, I am reading The Great Work of Your Life by Stephen Cope, who is the director, one of the directors at Kripalu Institute, um, which is a yoga institute. And he is taking the Bhagavad Gita and using it as a way to navigate finding the most meaningful path for you. I, I kind of bristle at the word purpose. I almost feel like it's a little bit heavy handed in terms of like you have to do this thing or else anything else that you're doing that's not your quote purpose is a waste of your time. I, I have a hard time with that concept. But that said, I find um, Stephen Cope, I'm probably about a third of the way through and I'm really enjoying it. And I think the Bhagavad Gita, which I haven't read since I was in high school, um, I'm really enjoying it being applied in a practical sense. I, I like when people take kind of older literature and apply it to contemporary scenarios. So I offer you those four books as a selection of what I've been reading lately. And I hope that you will stay tuned for when Elaine Weiss is on because I'm really looking forward to speaking with her about the Woman's Hour. You've already heard from J.F. Penn in the past. Unfortunately, we can't interview Carolyn Keene about Nancy Drew, but maybe we'll have Stephen Cope sometime on in the future. We shall see. So this concludes the reading roundup. And thank you so, so much for listening to the show. Thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for being a part of us getting so close that we can touch it uh, to 100 episodes, which has been such a joy. And I look forward to the show continuing for a long, long time. Thank you to everyone who has left reviews, who has written back, who has joined the Footnotes newsletter and shared that the show has been meaningful for you all of those letters mean the world and it makes it even more exciting to record and to share these conversations and all of my excitement about writing and all of us writing stories with everyone so with that said this concludes episode 89 thank you so much for listening thank you for listening to the secret library podcast 
The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.